0: There are no Buddhist teachers who say, be distracted. And that's probably a universal, I would say, in this wide, diverse world of Buddhism out there. One thing I think that we can find uni- agreement on, you won't find any teachers who say, be distracted. What that undistractedness looks like, there's a wide range of, and we've been talking about this on retreat, but. Aiming towards more presence, the ability to not be lost lost and caught up in things and to really have some stability in our practice, I think uh, everyone would agree with. So we want to aim towards that. And we do that by um, being mindful of what's happening, right? And you can only be mindful of what's happening in the present moment. When we practice mindfulness, it's doing basically probably many things, but two main things. It's leading to insight because we're, we're looking directly, closely, into the nature of our own minds and our own bodies and all experience. And it's also strengthening the ability and deepening the ability to be more settled to be less distracted. So both things are happening together, the insight and the settledness or the undistractedness. The way we practice mindfulness is we practice what's called the four foundations of mindfulness and many of you are quite familiar with this, I'm gonna say more about it. But uh, in the Pali language you'll Maybe many times we'll hear the word satipatthana. The sati is mindfulness. Satipatthana, foundation of mindfulness. And so there's these four foundations of mindfulness. And there is a very, very important, some people would say the most important discourse of the Buddha, or sutta. That's in the Pali language, sutta sutra in Sanskrit. This Pali sutta called the satipatthana, foundations of mindfulness, sutta. Uh, that and a couple of others are form the core, really, of the practice-oriented teachings. And so our whole, in the, in the, our whole scene, the, the insight Vipassana meditation scene, the style of practice, uh, comes out of these, uh, other, plenty of other influences too, but uh, we primarily are practicing mindfulness. We're practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. And so tonight I'm going to talk about the four foundations of mindfulness, in particular, the place, the role of samadhi, how it fits in with four foundations of mindfulness practice. Today, uh, the instructions shifted a little bit. Of course, you were welcomed by Adrian to continue with this, uh, in the way you have been practicing this 10 days. But in general, the instructions have been shifting to more what we call vipassana, Right practice. So we've been changing the orientation. Um, uh, for all of these different ways we've been practicing, actually for this whole week, and even if you're shifting today, the framework is, um, for all these styles of meditation, is uh, Satipatthana. So it shouldn't be a surprise. As with everything we've been talking about this week, there's not just one way to practice Uh, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. There's not just one way the role of samadhi is understood. So we're gonna talk a little about that um, to hopefully clarify and uh, name some of the main ways. You'll be familiar with some of these and some of what I'll talk about I'm guessing you may not be so familiar with. So the first thing I wanna do is I want to very, very briefly just name, we won't really spend much time, but name what the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, what Satipatthana, what, what it is, um, some of you may not be so familiar with the details of it, even though um, we've, you've all been practicing and been, have been taught uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So what are, the, what are these Four Foundations of Mindfulness? There are four categories of experience that are, Really, it covers all the, the, the four foundations of mindfulness taken as a whole, covers the entire range of anything you can possibly experience. So it's broken into these four categories, groups called four foundations. The first of the four, I'm just, you don't have to memorize this, just hear it if you want to. Some of you are taking notes, it's fine. Um, but I just want you to have kind of heard it, then you can let it go. It's not so important to remember, the, remember all this here. Um, first foundation is mindfulness of the body. And um, it's, it's divided into six groups of practices, and I'll just name them quickly. First of them is uh, mindfulness of breathing, and that's actually divided into four parts, and we've been focusing on that. Uh, I know some people are shaking their heads. Like, this stuff goes on and on. <laughs> but uh, again, you don't have to memorize it, but right, we've been saying um, mindfulness of in-breathing, Second, mindfulness of outbreathing. breathing Third, uh, that's knowing that. Third is train, uh, experiencing the whole body. So this is breath meditation, and the third element is experiencing the whole body. It's not even talking about the breath anymore. And the fourth is training to tranquilize the bodily formation. We give a whole talk just on that. There's a lot there, but basically, the first of these body practices is breath meditation. And it gives a little detail in there. I'm going to come back to some of that a bit. Okay. Second of the body practices is what's called the four postures, being mindful of sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. So we're starting to expand, broaden the what we can be mindful of. It's not just breath now, but the four postures, right? So we've got first breath, second four postures, third one then is really mindfulness in all activities, and there's a specific list, but it's eating, you know, going to the bathroom, it's it, it's basically anything you're doing, if you're brushing your teeth, if you have your yogi job, you're going about your business during the day, it's all activities, that's the third. Those three are what we mostly are familiar with and have been taught in the first foundation of mindfulness. I'm going to name what the other three are, but we're not going to Get into that tonight because they don't tend to be taught so much uh, in our scene very much. Um, there's what's called the parts of the body, and depending on the list, it's divided into either 31 or 32 parts. And there's actually these contemplations where, you know, you see the body as, which is true, like it's the bones, the muscles, tendons, you know, the intestines. It just, you know, you kind of deconstruct the body and do these contemplations on it. Um, fourth, uh, fifth one is what's called four elements meditation, and it's another way, a subtler way of viewing the body as just, um, um, just from a felt experiential sense. When we, you know, like for example, if there's solidity, when you feel that, that would be earth element. You know, that breathing is air element. If there's temperature, heat, it's a fire element. That's that kind of thing. Again, we're, I'm just not going to give any detail on that. But it's what's called four elements meditation, and then the last one is um, uh, nine contemplations on a corpse in various stages of decay. <laughs> and of course, to do that practice, you need access to a corpse. <laughs> and so that would tend, we you know probably some many of you I'm sure have never even heard of that practice before, you know. It's uh, and it's really would be done maybe in Asia when there's a charnel ground where they would bring the bodies, and probably mostly a monastic practice, and it's not for everyone, and you know, so um, there's a whole piece we could say about that. So that was just naming it, but the first is really think of it if, in the way you've probably been taught is mindfulness of the body, and then specifically the breath, and then opening up to the whole experience of the body. Okay? That's the first foundation of mindfulness. Second of foundation of mindfulness is what's often called feeling or feeling tone if you're interested, it's Vedana and Pali. Basically means paying attention, being mindful of the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality of, that accompanies any experience. right? So it, it has a special meaning. It doesn't mean feelings like we use mean in, often in common usage. You know, We equate feelings with emotions or moods. That's not what it's talking about. So for example, if you're sitting and maybe you have knee pain, There's the actual experience, it might be pressure, burning, stabbing, whatever the feeling is. And then there's also just the fact that it's unpleasant. That's all, it's simple. That's the second foundation. Okay, first foundation, body. Second foundation, Vedana, feeling tone. Third foundation are um, states of the mind and heart. And there's a specific list that's given um, there's noticing if there are what are called the kalasas or defilements, if the wanting mind, what's called greed, aversion, or a delusion is present or not in the mind, it's knowing that. And then there's some others knowing if the mind is um, concentrated or not concentrated. Um, let me look up the exact list, I sometimes forget some of the details that are in there. Um, is the mind contracted? You understand, you know with mindfulness. If it's distracted, you understand this. Um, is the mind liberated? Um, it's, it's just states like that. This is a pretty short list here of the mind. Okay. Third foundation. The fourth foundation then um, is a little more complex, and I just want to name it quickly again since you've heard it. You won't remember all this. Don't try, you don't need to. It's what's sometimes translated as mind objects in Pali, it's dhammas, you know, the word dharma in Sanskrit, it's dhamma in Pali. And one of the meanings, you know, the word dharma has a range of meanings. Um, You know, it it means the teachings, it means kind of the way of things or the truth of things. Another meaning of dharma just means things. That's the meaning, it's things. To, to notice, dharmas, dharmas. So the first, this, is, uh, this foundation consists of some of the Buddhist lists. So the five hindrances are on this list, right? Um, you've probably heard those if you've been on, uh, there's a, everyone here has to have been on some retreats. I'm sure you've gotten a tar- talk on the hindrances, right? The wanting mind, sense desire, the opposite of that, aversion, wanting to get rid of unpleasant, uh, restlessness, and uh, remorse or worry, sloth and torpor and doubt. These are these hindrances. So it wants us to to know um, um, if the hindrances is there, or being mindful of the hindrance is not there. We can know that. But it also, it's not just knowing if the hindrance is there or not. It's actually some of the insights are starting to come in here. And I'll just read one of them. So taking the first one for sensual desire. You understand if sensual desire is in you and you understand, but you also understand how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual sensual desire. If there wasn't sensual desire in there, what are the things that trigger it off and and make it come up for us? We start to notice that. So that's, that's what it's specifically saying. And if sensual desire is there, what are the things that help us let go of it? And it also asks us to note, to come to know deeply and clearly what are the things that will um, prevent the future arising of, of sense desires, right? So it's not only noticing the presence or absence, but it's, it's a little more complex. It wants us to get some skill around letting it go and, and, and sort of keeping them from, um, from, from arising in the first place. So that's the hindrances. Another list on the five aggregates, and I'm not going to, uh, I don't want to say anything about that right now. Um, there's what's called the six sense bases. Right, six sense but Seeing, hearing, it's the senses. Seeing, hearing, tasting. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting. The body, all the experiences in the body, and the sixth is everything in the mind. It's called the mind door, because that's another place we experience. And it's not only asking us to, to notice and be mindful of when you're seeing something or hearing something, you just there's mindfulness of what you're of what's happening. We can be mindful of seeing or hearing. But it actually is also asking us to um, be mindful of, um, it says, being mindful of the fetter that arises in dependence on sense door. And what that means, what's a fetter? A fetter is something that binds. It's the place where we get caught or hooked. So an example would be, say, if you're here on retreat and maybe there's a person that you find particularly interesting on retreat. Maybe you feel some attraction to that person. Or the opposite. Maybe there's a person that there's some aversion towards. It could happen, right? So um, if we're being mindful, we notice when we see that person, ah, Seeing, seeing. So that's that's we're practicing. Fourth foundation, right there. We're noticing sense contact at the eye door, they call it. And we see that. Oh, when, when I'm saying it in words, it's not a discursive thing. It's just a direct knowing. But we we see. Oh, um, when I see that person, either desire comes up in me, or depending, maybe aversion comes up. So we understand the fetter, and it's, it goes on to ask us to understand how to work with the fetter. Maybe the answer for you is: don't look at that person, or you know, just don't go for it and build up the desire or the aversion. No, you know, I need to stay on the other side of the dining hall, facing the other direction, or something like that. Maybe maybe that's the answer, or maybe it's just coming to know. Oh, there's just maybe that's enough. Oh, there's um. Um, aversion there. Oh, I see that. And just by that, sometimes we can let it go. It's just whatever's skillful in helping us to not be caught in in, in the fetter of it. We had the hindrances, these five aggregates, six sense bases. I told you there was a lot here. There's two more. Seven factors of enlightenment are in here. And it's not only knowing, being mindful when they're present, as we've been talking about, but also gaining some Insight or understanding in what helps strengthen the seven factors of enlightenment. And then finally, the last of these is is the Four Noble Truths. And it's um, uh, asking us to come to know as it really is the Four Noble Truths. So... I'm sure most of you don't remember, and I was encouraging you not to, that you don't have to stir your mind up or try to remember all that, but I'll just tell you that anything you can think of in your, in any experience you have will fit in some of these categories. And it's just more naming and systematizing how we can work mindfully with anything that comes up in the range of our experience, right? Anytime you're practicing mindfulness, you're practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. Any time. Now the sutta itself doesn't give us a, it doesn't really help us to know, is there a particular level or type of samadhi that that it has in mind for us? You know, that that, that it's meant for us to develop? Sutta doesn't really help us there. Samadhi's actually only mentioned in three places in the sutta. It's mentioned, and I said this quickly, in the third foundation on states of the mind, I had said, you notice if the mind's concentrated or not. Actually, it's this Pali word, samahitam, which means having attained concentration. So it's actually noticing, mindfully, if knowing if you've attained samadhi or not. It doesn't tell us how much. It just so, does does it mean a certain level or just any degree, it doesn't say. And it's not saying to to cultivate any, it's just knowing whether you've attained samadhi or not. So right there, it's just, it doesn't matter, it's just the knowing. Second place it occurs is in the fourth foundation on the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. It's in that list I named that, right? If you recall, samadhi's on the list, it doesn't, okay, so. And the third place it occurs is also in the fourth foundation if you um, uh, which is on the four noble truths. right? And if you're familiar with the four noble truths, you know that the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path and right samadhi of the eightfold path. Right? Samadhi's there. In fact, uh, just in case you're interested, this sutta, this Satipatthana sutta, Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta, occurs in a second place called the Maha, Great Satipatthana Sutta, which is identical to this, except it uh, expands the Four Noble Truths and has the whole Eightfold Path listed out. And then it tells us that right samadhi is the four jhanas. Now, um, right samadhi is always defined as the four jhanas in the suttas. By the way, that doesn't mean if you don't have jhana, you don't have right samadhi. Everything else is wrong samadhi. No. The way to think of it is, right samadhi culminates in the four jhanas. It's always right samadhi, if you're bringing right intention, and right view, and so don't get caught up in in that. Well, I have to have jhana, it's not right samadhi. However, it is an interesting question, would the sutta have us know that right samadhi is jhana, but then not want us to attain right samadhi? It's not clear, okay. So, again, anytime you're practicing mindfulness, you're practicing four foundations of mindfulness in some form or other. Why do we practice? For insight. There are three ways that insight arises, and they're all important. And I want to talk about all three, and we're practicing four foundations of mindfulness with all of them. You know, we often think four foundations of mindfulness practice is when we're sitting like we're doing, we are here in formal meditation with eyes closed. And I'll talk about that in a a, a few minutes. But really the first way I wanna talk about that insight arises is in daily life practice. And I think, I know that the insights from daily life practice are at least equal in importance at least equal in importance to the insights that come if you're in your deepest, you know, insight meditation retreat. If you're practicing mindfulness in daily life, you're practicing the four foundations of mindfulness in daily life. And in fact, I said daily life activities are explicitly part of the first contemplation on the body. Now, of course, when we're in daily life, the question is, well, what level of samadhi do we need? And the answer, some people are laughing, the answer is whatever you got. <laughs> you do the best you can, right? We don't make a stress about it. it. It is what it is, right? And of course we'll have times in daily life when we're on automatic pilot, right? We're caught up in things. Sometimes we, people will say, oh I went unconscious or I went to sleep and then I woke up. Well you didn't go unconscious and you didn't go to sleep. You were conscious, you were just, I call it being on automatic pilot, right? And also, we all know that probably many of us, so many people say, okay, I'm going to practice mindfulness in daily life. So I get up in the morning and whatever, I'm being mindful, feeling as I'm brushing my teeth, or I'm driving my car and maybe I feel my hands on the steering wheel. And then eight hours later, I wake up out of automatic pilot, and I remember, oh yeah, I'm trying to be uh, mindful, right? We can probably, many of us relate to that. Well, it shows, because we don't have the stability of the samadhi, the undistractedness is not so strong, so it's easier in daily life. So there's no question that the more we can practice formally and strengthen some samadhi, of course it's an aid to daily life. But the important thing is um, you have what you have moment by moment. What's the meditation instruction when we're here in the hall in formal meditation? What's the instruction when you get lost in thinking or planning? Anybody want to say? What's the instruction? Right, right, people are saying come back to the breath. It's actually a trick question. When you're lost, there is no instruction. You're gone. And you don't even know you're gone. The only instruction kicks in when you wake up and realize, oh, where was I? Now you're back. You actually don't need an instruction then, really, when you think about it, because you're back. Just be back. You know, really, hearing that, I hope it will help everyone relax, because you can't stop when you're gone. No need to struggle about it. When you're gone, just be gone. It's not a problem. Right? I mean, it it is a problem if we're caught up in things and we react in unskillful ways. It can create suffering, yes. But, I mean, it's just what's happening. When you're back, now you have a chance to practice four foundations of mindfulness. And So rather than struggling or beating yourself up or whatever, then we can just bring the mindfulness in our daily life to what's happening. Right. And so I think um, it's a mistake that sometimes we diminish or invalidate uh, four foundations of mindfulness practice in daily life. Think in your life of some area where you struggle or suffer. Probably isn't too hard to come up with something, right? What's going on when that's happening? There's a lot of Dharma right there. You're getting to see the, the Four Noble Truths in action, right? There's some kind of clinging. Caused maybe by some kind of craving wanting to hold on to something pleasant or get away from something unpleasant. So all of that's in action right there in daily life practice, right? Um, maybe you notice there's some aversion or some grasping or wanting in the mind. There's either the Kalesa third foundation or as a hindrance, fourth foundation. It's all right there working, right? Which sense door is it coming in? Maybe you're hearing something that's annoying you. You know, you're trying to meditate when you're at home and you know, maybe you're in your apartment and the person downstairs has the stereo up too loud, right? It's not to say you shouldn't go down and ask them to turn it down. You don't have to necessarily just sit there and take it. But anyway, in the moment, um, ah, hearing. What's the fetter that's coming with hearing? Ah, hearing stereo, hearing sound, aversions kicking in. See, we're coming to know all of this is here. In any moment in daily life practice, there's a lot of dharma right there. Is there pleasant or unpleasant or neutral happening in that moment? Also, if we learn to let go of our suffering a little, and I bet everyone here can talk about, all dharma practitioners in some area of your life can say, you know, I'm getting a little better in this certain area of not clinging, maybe letting go a little bit, you're learning to let go. That's the whole dharma, is liberation through non-clinging. Right? There's a lot there in daily life practice. I'll give you another example. Um, When I was a kid, I grew up watching the old Western movies with my dad. So it's programmed in me now. I love them. It's a big pull. Never was too into like the cowboy and Indian ones because even as a child, I guess I had a you know I just thought well why are they fighting? It's like they were here first and you know it's kind of their land and so I'm not too much into that. But the ones were like the um, the gunslinger ones or the ranchers or battling it out over the water rights. It's like I love those movies. (laughs) Any of you ever? I think was this last year. Was it a 310 to Yuma came out? It was a good movie. It's got a little violence, so some of you who are sensitive, be careful about that. But it's as good as a Western get. got. Loved it. So it's just programmed in me. Well, I don't watch much TV anymore, but it used to be, you know, it'd be late Sunday night, getting up to go to work the next morning, Monday. I was tired. Turn on the TV just to kind of turn my brain off a while. There's some old Western. I can feel it pulling me in, hooking me in. Right? And I'm thinking, you know, don't get hooked into this. It's 1030 at night. It's not over till 2 (laughs) a.m. I want to get up and meditate in the morning. I'll be too tired to meditate. And I knew what was happening. And and plus, I've seen it before, and it's not even a good one. (laughs) There I am. Something's pulling me in. Right? Daily life. What's going on right there? Eye door. Fetter, hindrance, <laughs> right Or a kalesa, defilement of greed, right? I also get to get in touch with um, second noble truth, uh, second path, a uh, uh, second step on the Eightfold path. wise or skillful or right intention. What's my intention? You know, there's so much dharma in anything there if we can just work with it. Okay. That's the first way insight arises. Very, very important not to be underestimated. And the important place of, what's the place of samadhi in that? It's got a great place and you you do the best you can, right, in daily life, all right. Second way that insight arises, also very important, is when you are doing formal meditation, but not the times when you're concentrated and it's going what we call going well. The times when you're struggling it feels like it's falling apart. It's not a nice sit, right? That is such an important place for insight to arise. We think we have to get back to the good, what we call the good meditation. mm right there. You're practicing for foundations of mindfulness. We think something's going wrong when that happens, but nothing went wrong. It's just what's happening in the moment. That's all. Right? It's not falling apart. It just looks like whatever. We don't like it. Ah, aversion. Unpleasant. Right there. A big, big shift came in my practice when I got... Um, I remember when this first time this happened, I got just as interested in my suffering as I was in my bliss. Big shift. Check it out sometimes. Get to really watch the mind. Oh, something unpleasant. And I just can see the mind just pulling away and really watching, Come to the, really come to know dukkha, feel that suffering quality of it. Right? Really important place. So if you're sitting here and you can't find the breath and the hindrances are strong, You're practicing Four Foundations of Mindfulness right there. Some of the uh, enlightenment factors maybe feel weaker. Yeah, right? Well, it's cycles, right? They're sort of in a cycle where maybe not as strong. So the mind does get buffeted around more by certain experiences. How much samadhi do you need in those times to practice? Whatever you got, right? There's no rule about it. that's the same as in daily life. You get it's actually that's always the answer. We can say a little more about it during the times when maybe the clearer sits. We'll get that in a few minutes. But uh, during those times, by definition, it's a you know you're not very concentrated then. That's what it is then. So that's the answer to how much samadhi is needed in Satipatthana, Four Foundations of Mindfulness practice in those times. So it can feel kind of feeble, like we're not really able to practice, but you're fully practicing, and so many insights come. I can't tell you how many people, you know, we spend so much time, the reason we say over and over again, how many times have we said on this retreat, look, the best you can, try not to be striving, Try to be easeful and relaxed. It's going to come and go. No matter what you do, you'll have some good sits. You'll have some unpleasant sits. You're going to be up and down. And we already know ahead of time that's what's going to happen. It's not a surprise. And you, you heard it, right? And then how much did you fall into? It's like if we took everything we said not to do, but you didn't hear the not. And you thought we said do it, Right? because we get caught in these things, right? So there's a lot of Dharma right there when we get caught. That's a place to look right there. This is how the insight and wisdom comes in here, right? Oh, I even, you know, maybe, I cannot tell you all how many times I saw that I was clinging. I felt the dukkha of it. I knew it was killing my samadhi And if I could let go and relax, I'd actually get what I wanted. And the mind wouldn't let go for some reason. Right? Maybe I, whatever it was, didn't want to let go. I didn't have, wasn't skillful enough or something. So what do you do right in those times? All the foundations of mindfulness are right there. First noble truth. Dukkha, because of clinging. Second noble truth's right there. Craving, Yep. I'm craving. You know, it really does work that way. It le- it conditions the mind to cling. Right? Aversions there, the places and the hindrance on and on. Right? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Everything's there that you need. Now, of course, we work with it the best we can during those times because we don't have the support of the samadhi that 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 is such a strong support there. So we just do the best we can. But that's that's enough. And through that. Many people have come in for interviews during this week who have been struggling and struggling with striving or not letting go or something. And I'm not saying everybody's totally past it, so if you're still struggling, I don't want you to compare and think, oh, everybody else got past it but me. Don't worry. Whatever's going on with you, you probably have plenty of company. Seriously. But a lot of people would come in, and, and, and through the struggling, through the suffering, some learning happens, and at some point, being able to let go. So it doesn't maybe they get in it again later, or maybe not. But you know, so you can notice if you had any moments of learning to let go from your suffering. Get interested in your mind at these times. By the way, even on very long retreats, uh, these difficulties come. I was dismayed to find that, but um, uh, you know, when I think Eugene or Sal, I can't forget who said, you know, it's not linear. So it's just going to always be that way. You know ahead of time. It's not a surprise next time it comes. Right. So notice how the mind works. Um, so I want to use a sports analogy here. It's like riding a bicycle. Eugene was talking about. Um, You know, he's saying something about up and down the hills. So think about it when you're out riding a bike. We go up the hills, and it can be tough, hard. It can actually be painful, and it can hurt, right? Not fun sometimes. And going down the hill, it feels great, right? And it, it can just be, you know, we feel the wind, and it's easy, and it can be pleasant and everything. feels better going downhill. Which one uh, actually did you get the most out of? Which one built up your cardio and your legs the most? Going up. Now, of course, you get a lot going down, too. I think the pleasure and the beauty of, and I don't want to diminish what that does for you, too. But So the analogy kind of breaks down. I guess these sports analogies only go so far. But um, <laughs> um, But the point I'm trying to make is, <laughs> I was trying to weave some in because uh, of Sally was talking about. I've been planning for days. I could only, this is the only one I could come up with. <laughs> if you only knew how seriously how long I spent thinking. Okay, it's like a football game. No. <laughs> and I was going to put them all in here to try and get a laugh, but it's <laughs> the only one I could come up with. So. <laughs> But you get the point, right? It, some t- just We don't wanna judge where we're getting the benefit just because of how pleasant or unpleasant it is. Okay. The third way insight arises, we're talking about daily life, we're talking about informal practice when we judge that it's, it's the difficulties. And then there's the time in the, in the meditation when it really is clear that all the factors of enlightenment are really, many of you, maybe all of you, are experiencing times like this. Well, you know how that is there, right? That's a whole different game. It's not actually better insight than the other times. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure about this, but I, I kind of have a belief that really these other times I'm talking about might even be the more productive times for insights. I'm not sure about that, but I really kind of, it's my personal belief but certainly there's this incredible power of what, of it's not less than the insights that come when it, it's what we call the good meditations. Okay. All right, so I wanna talk about that some. Mindfulness is often equated with insight and concentration is seen as a separate practice, right? Mindfulness equated with insight. And then in concentration, it gets talked about that way some. And this is what we mean when we talk about separating um, into two paths of samatha and vipassana, of the tranquility path and the vipassana path. And when we approach practice in this way, way that probably many of us, most of us get taught, um, it, does, uh, it leads to certain ways of practicing, and it leads to certain views around the role of samadhi. There's other approaches, too, that we could take. Some approaches, and some of you may practice in this way, actually don't equate mindfulness with insight, but it sees satipatthana, the mindfulness, as the practice that leads to right samadhi. It's, it's a very different view. It's actually, it's, I'm just putting it out as another way, that sees by doing these four foundations of pra, foundations of mindfulness practices, what's happening. It is strengthening insight. It's also, by applying the mind, directing it to our experiences, it's strengthening concentration. And these are strengthening together. And seen in that way, satipatthana is the practice that leads to right samadhi through which one gains insight. So insight's not so much a practice, it's more of what you gain through your practice. It's just just a different slant. Here's a quote from the suttas I find interesting. It says, What is samadhi? What is the basis of samadhi? Unification of mind is samadhi. The four foundations of practice, of four foundations of mindfulness, is the basis for samadhi. Isn't that interesting? Four foundations of mindfulness is the basis for unification of mind. Kind of a different slant, right? It's not the right view, it's it's not the only view or a better view, but it is an interesting view. So I want to talk about some of the various specific ways that Satipatthana is practiced. Just going to name a few of the basic approaches you may be exposed to here. Um, There are many, many uh, variations. And so I want to read something that Jack Kornfield said about, that I thought was right on. He said, in the early 1970s, I collected teachings from 12 of the most highly regarded meditation masters living uh, in Thailand and Burma, who were teaching variations of mindfulness or insight of Vipassana. This material became my first book, Living Buddhist Masters. And by the way, um, that's a book I would recommend. It's been reprinted uh, as Living Dharma. It's probably down in the library here, I would, I would guess. It's a great book to get a sense of And and if nothing else, the introduction to that book is just such a clear, kind of direct teaching on sort of the essence of the whole path. It is really, I thought, brilliant. But it's a a book that I think is, is, is highly recommended. Each of these teachers had different approaches to Vipassana practice. And some of them emphasized concentration more than others. All 12 styles were representative of 50 or 100 ways that I know to do Vipassana. So you were just gonna name a few kind of basics here. So the way that foundations, Satipatthana, Four Foundations of Mindfulness is often taught, is you come here on a retreat. And this is be familiar probably to everyone here. What do they tend to do on the first day or two, first day maybe, stay with the breath, kind of like we do here, get settled. And then at some point pretty early on after a day or two, open up to include the body, first found it. So they're expanding out to the first foundation of mindfulness, and then maybe it doesn't have to go in this order. But maybe in another day or two, it'll open up to include pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Now it's expanded to the second foundation of mindfulness, they include that. And then at some point, it even opens up more and includes all these states of the mind and heart and emotions and thinking. And it just opens up more and more to include more of our experience. And so you can see that it's being presented in this step-by-step way, exactly kind of following the sequence of how the Four Foundations of Mindfulness is is laid out, right? How it's taught then tends to vary. Some people will emphasize um, staying with the breath a lot, kind of as a main kind of home base practice, and only letting go of the breath if something else is going that's kind of strong or compelling, and then we go and deal with that and work with it with our mindfulness. And once it changes, subsides, come back to the breath. Other people don't give that much emphasis to the breath and perhaps may really de-emphasize it and um, more talk about um, just having this open presence or awareness being present moment by moment. I think Adrian was using that language today. So it's a whole way that we hear often talked about in a beautiful way of practicing, of kind of being open and receptive and present for, and it's more of the language. Sometimes you'll hear it. I don't know if Adrian really said it like this, but it's really very receptive language. It's being present, but just allowing experiences to come. Other type of languages, people will use this more, directing the attention to the objects, right? So there's a lot of different flavors here. So in all of these cases there's a range of degrees of emphasis on the breath. And so each of these are going to affect the they'll have different effects on on the, the type of samadhi. There. And, and so that kind of practice I'm thinking all of you are probably pretty familiar with. So I don't wanna I wanna use the rest of our time here to um, talk about another style that I'm guessing um, many of you are probably not familiar with, and it's actually quite similar. It's really the same thing that Eugene was talking about in his last talk. You may have th- thinking he thought he was talking about breath meditation and concentration. He was actually talking about four foundations of mindfulness practice. I didn't actually clear this ahead of time with him. He's giving me a slight nod, but I'm, I just know because he and I just happened to practice an experience I think is pretty similar. right? And I'm gonna spend the rest of the time on this one but I want to be really clear. I'm doing it for two reasons only. Not, not because it does happen to be the way I practice, but that's, uh, I'm not emphasizing it for that. It's, it's because um, I think mainly it's something that you may not be as familiar with, but also I think it fits in very nicely with what we've been doing on this particular retreat. So I'm going to emphasize this. So first, I just want to say just a m- couple of minutes about my own practice background. Sometimes people who know me, I'm kind of getting labeled I'm a samadhi meditator, or I'm getting labeled like I'm a jhana meditator. It's it's inaccurate. Uh, I'm actually a Satipatthana, Four Foundations of Mindfulness practitioner. It's true, people ask me, I'll say, uh, I started practicing in 1970, so it's been almost 39 years. My whole practice is breath meditation, that is true. But I realize when I say it, it's completely, I'm going to explain what I mean in a minute, it's completely inaccurate. I practice breath meditation in a way that that actually is just a doorway into the, just like you can get on any Vipassana retreat. It's the same. So I want to explain that a little more, but I want to talk about this. Now when I teach a Vipassana retreat, say here or wherever, if it's got that name Vipassana, I teach in the standard style you're all used to. When I teach, if I teach my own style of practice, um, I don't call it a Vipassana retreat because I don't want to create confusion. I'm trying to actually figure out, I'm gonna get Eugene to help me. What I really want to call it is, this I'm gonna say a few phrases, but you can't, but I need the word, I need two or three words. I want to call it one unified style of practice that integrates and synthesizes samadhi, even all the way if you want to go to jhana, And synthesizes all the four foundations of mindfulness insight into one practice that sometimes may be inclined more towards samadhi and jhana um, kind of style, and may other times go in the direction more of insight. But it's really just one thing. Retreat. (laughs) 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 So you don't want to call it a jhana retreat. That's misleading. Maybe it's a you know right. So it's it's, you're talking about it's. So anyway, when I began my practice, that was in 1970, was actually in a Hindu oriented yoga tradition and it was all breath meditation. And I lived in a meditation ashram for um, a couple of years and it was all breath, breath, breath. And then later in the, when I was living in Santa Cruz in the mid to late seventies, Stephen Levine and Ram Dass were living in Santa Cruz. And so I, I was hanging out with them and it moved me over into Vipassana meditation and I don't remember if I was taught to emphasize the breath in or not, but, um, or if I did so naturally, just because I'd already kind of established it. But in any case, I naturally had a kind of a strong home base with the breath. And what I found is I wasn't getting that much instruction, kind of some, but um, I'm going to work with teachers here and there, but basically naturally what I found for myself was I tended to have a lot of strong preference for the breath, and it naturally as it got stronger and stronger, sometimes it would feel like I'm more really wholeheartedly just dedicated on the breath itself, and you, maybe for long periods of time, and that could go to samadhi, and you can get jhanas or whatever, and it can go that direction. But I found also, on its own, without even, it just happened to unfold this way for me, that there were times when you had the concentration of the breath, and I was on the breath, but it was exactly, I love the way that Eugene was describing it, It just opened up, and and you just knew and connected with the first foundation of mindfulness, the body. It was just so clear. It was there. You didn't have to go looking. It was just so just there. And the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and the states of the mind and heart, it it just opened into that all its own through the breath. Right. So that's why I say in my own practice, I just call it breath meditation, but it's misleading. It's, it's, It's breath that opens up into foundation of mindfulness. Um, by the way, the Anapanasati Sutta says that through, when you develop and cultivate mindfulness of breathing alone, it completely fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. And when you completely fulfill the four foundations of mindfulness, you fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment. And through that, you, you reach knowledge and deliverance or something like that, it says. How can breath alone fulfill the four foundations of mindfulness? If you practice breath meditation in a style that's what we talked about earlier, that exclusive, where you lose the connection with the body more, and you're really getting into the experience of samadhi more and disconnecting from the body more, then you are practicing in a style where it's true the, the concentration style is different than the insight style. And that will develop a certain style of samadhi and then you would t- turn your attention to insight. If you practice an inclusive style where instead of disconnecting or losing it, it actually opens up into the body, right? then breath med- that's how breath meditation alone can open up or fulfill the four foundations of mindfulness. That's all it's talking about. And then that's a way where I have found, for myself at least, um, it's, it's kept a good strong support of samadhi that can come in, even if we're doing uh, Vipassana practice. So that may be a style you want to check out. More, I don't know. You know. So just to say again, if I'm if I'm at a retreat, a concentration retreat, I'm actually not doing a concentration retreat. And if I'm at a Vipassana retreat, I'm actually not doing a concentration retreat. I'm just doing this kind of same thing. That's just. So you can check out for you, right? Because for many people, it's different. We are kind of emphasizing different than you'll tend to do on Vipassana retreats. Concentration, mindfulness, tranquility, insight, they're all different qualities. And no matter how you're practicing, even the way I'm talking about with breath, breath, some can be stressed more than others, right? We can incline the mind in one way or another. So even if you're kind of combining or unifying or synthesizing them into one practice, like I'm talking about with this breath meditation, there's still gonna be times when it might incline in one direction or another. And we wanna just be mindful and know that. I love, Eugene said it, actually used a phrase that I have not used, but it was exactly right on. He was talking about a mindfulness of breathing. And then at some point, how it can shift to mindfulness with breathing I think that captures it so perfectly, right? if you're doing this breath meditation style, right? where even if we're connecting through other foundations of mindfulness besides just the breath, with breathing is a style where the breath really just becomes a doorway in. Right? And then sometimes what will happen is, if you're practicing in this style, it will feel like the breath is at the center and it's really quite concentrating place. And sometimes it can feel like that's where the, all the awareness is, and really we are more just doing a concentration practice there. Other times the breath can still feel at the center, yet the awareness is broader to encor- encompass more around the center. Right? And it starts to open up to more and more and more of our experiences naturally. If it doesn't happen naturally for you and you want to practice that way, then we can just guide you. It's not hard to do in, the, in that direction. Another way it might unfold is where it's not so much breath at the center and the, the awareness expands around it. And this is harder to explain, but it's like the breath is in. We open up to more experiences, but it's like the breath is in the body and in the mind, and, it, and it's not separated out so much. And it's like the con- It feels like the insight and the concentration are happening together. It's hard to explain. Right? I suppose it would have been a shorter talk if at the beginning I had just said, you know, there's no one fixed right way uh, in which samadhi relates to satipatthana practice. And it's really however you choose to practice and whatever's most wise and skillful for you. I've gotten some feedback from a number of people that um, they, one of the things they appreciated on this retreat is how accepting and open it's been, and really in a, genuinely so, of a range of ways people and respectful of a range of ways people may practice and it 's not saying there 's one better way and so they felt very inclusive but I also got feedback um, today someone gave me some feedback that actually that didn 't feel so good it felt a little too nebulous and mushy, and it kind of wished we had been a little more here 's how to practice and not open it up some more and you know we could we actually talked about that ahead of time how do we want the what approach it uh, before before the retreat started, and you could go either way, but the truth is there is a range, and it's not one way, and the best way for each one of us is not going to be the same, right? It's going to vary. So how do we find, this is, I'm just ending with this, how do we find what's the best way for us? The first thing I want to say, two things. One is is that in all this stuff I was talking about, we want to keep it simple. Just if you're interested in this style, connect with the breath, keep it simple, and just see how it unfolds for you. And then if you're working with someone with a teacher, that you can kind of steer and everything. It's just really a simple thing. Notice, is it tending to become more exclusive, disconnected from awareness of the body? Is it tending to open up more into the body? You know, we just check it out. You may be practicing in a certain style that you learned, and you may wish to stay with that. It's just the way you were taught. It works great and everything. There's your answer right there. That's the best style of practice for you. You may wish to try other practices you hear. Maybe this retreat was different for you and you wanna keep, not even what I'm talking about, but just in any of the ways you've heard here. And you may want to, to keep, keep going with that and something new and try it out and see. You don't wanna bounce around between a lot of practices, but um, you can take some and try it. Give it enough time to see effect and then go back, try something new Don't be afraid to check out new things and experiment. And just be honest as we can with ourselves and see what is the result. Oftentimes, we, of course, all of us need help from teachers. You know, someone who they don't have to be fully enlightened, fortunately, or maybe there wouldn't be that many teachers around, but um, um, certainly uh, people who are well practiced. Um, have some skill in teaching, and have some experience in what we're working with, maybe a little further along in it so they can, they've been through that terrain or territory. Right? All of us need that, both when we're struggling and when things are going well. So we don't want to forget about or, or let go of the need to get some good guidance. But also there's the times. Just look into your own practice. Don't you have times, maybe this week, when in that moment, just in that moment, you didn't need a teacher. It was clear what was happening. It was obvious what was happening. Either it, it, you didn't need anybody to tell you, right, in that moment. The breath's opening in a certain way. The clarity's opening a certain way. In those moments... Right then, the breath is your teacher, or whatever. Your experience is your teacher right there. And we don't want to invalidate that. Now we don't want to get arrogant now and think, OK, so no, you know, now I, I don't need teachers. And you could practice in that way. But what can happen, sometimes we run into little cul-de-sacs that um, are unnecessary. Or big cul de sacs or bad neighborhoods that would be better to best avoid it altogether. So we can get some help from that. But also, um, not to discount our own inner teacher either. So let's just uh, sit quietly for a few moments. in whatever style we're practicing, may through the support of spiritual friends and community and teachers, and through our own sincere intentions and our own inner wisdom, may we all come to deep freedom, liberation, peace. So thank you all for your presence this evening.